Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, Z-Pack? It's your boy, Z-Dog MD, and I'm here with somebody you will recognize if you're a fan of the show. This is my brother-in-law, uh, Dr. James Riddle. He is professor of internal medicine division of infectious diseases at the University of Michigan, and it happens to be family. And we are on Oahu right now, having a grand old time working hard like we always do. And Dr. Dr. Riddle, or Jamie to his homies, if you're nasty, uh, just uh, did a editorial uh, in JAMA that will just have come out about some new guidelines for the management of HIV. And I thought it would be really good to pick an expert's brain about the management of a disease that many, for many people, it's fallen off our radar collectively, but it is still absolutely relevant on the front lines uh, treating so many people, which is in a way which is now a chronic disease instead of a death sentence. How we got there is a long story, but what we do now is what you're, you seem to be interested. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's a pleasure. Are you having fun here? Because no. I mean, I'm just saying har out, out the window here when we're done, I'll show you the view. It's pretty dope. Um, what, I mean, what got you interested in doing this editorial about the new guidelines? Why do they matter? Yeah, so the guidelines are really important. They summarize uh, all of the most recent data that's available on treatment of HIV. So they're released every couple of years, like every two years. Last one was mm-hmm. in 2016. What's the society called? That so it's the International AIDS Society USA uh, puts out these guidelines periodically. Sounds like a party bunch, man. <laughs> <laughs> very, uh, very smart people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they're picked up by other, and they're similar to other guidelines that are available. So there's also the Department of Health and Human Services guidelines. Mm. If you go to a website called AIDSinfo.gov, that's mm. sort of the main place to go. Um, all these guidelines are consistent. These guidelines, uh, in particular, are published in JAMA uh, every couple of years. Uh, the first ones were published in 1996. Wow! So if you can remember way back then, that was like in the days of you know AZT. Um, the protease inhibitors had just you know sort of come out, sequinovir and denovir. I mean, there's drugs that we just don't even use anymore. <laughs> yeah. they've, they've changed dramatically. That's like 22 years ago. So over that time, but all these new drugs developed, um, all kinds of new things we've learned about HIV. Isn't it interesting? It's like it's, it, HIV management is one of the great success stories of pharma. Right. Like we were actually able to turn something that was invariably a death sentence, except for those handful of non-progressors, into something that's managed as a chronic disease. And as an infectious disease doc, what, what's interesting about Jamie is he's really a primary care doc for that's people right. with HIV AIDS. Yeah. 
And so you have to ha handle the whole patient. Do the, these patients also have another primary doc or no? Usually not. I mean, yeah. often we're their only doctors, you know, because we see these patients once every, you know, sort of three to six months kind of yeah. time frame very frequently. And so a lot of times because of insurance coverage you know, these yeah. days, yeah. it's very hard to find uh, primary care doctors. Um, and so often we're the only ones taking care of these patients. And so we provide all the primary care, all the vaccinations, you know, screening for cancer, uh, mental health is a big issue. Um, so all, all of those things we, we manage in our clinic. You said vaccinations. It's bad enough that these folks have HIV, potentially AIDS. Now you want to give them autism? Nah. Is that really what you're about, professor? No, and all joking aside, so the new guidelines, what do you think, what, what are the big take-homes from what's changed and what yeah. they're going to have? So what's happened over the last sort of five to six, seven, eight years is a change from protease inhibitors and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And NRTs, so yeah. NRTIs, right? A change from using those as sort of your base drug to integrase inhibitors, oh. or INSTIs is the other abbreviation for it, I-N-S-T-I. I'm not very familiar with those drugs. Teach yeah. me about that. So integrase works. inhibitors, they're, they're really interesting drugs. They prevent HIV, when it's transcribed from RNA to DNA, it prevents that DNA transcript from being integrated into the host genome. Oh. So it inhibits the enzyme that causes that transfer to occur. Got it. And it turns out these drugs are very potent. Mm. So they, if you just give it with monotherapy in like an experimental setting, viral loads go down, you know, almost two logs, which is you know, a large amount compared to other drugs. So they're very potent. Yeah. And it turns out they have very few side effects, which obviously is great for patients. Um, and uh, they can be combined into these single tablet regimens. So you kind of have this perfect combination, uh -huh. right, of uh -huh. a very potent drug. Um, it's, it has a, what we call a very high genetic barrier to resistance, so mm. meaning that it takes a lot for the, 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 the virus has to mutate quite a bit to uh, cause resistance to occur. Right. And so, as opposed to AZT or something. Which, exactly. Yeah. Right, very right, quickly. Right. It can monotherapy. Happen, it can have more quickly. Yeah. And so these drugs, it's hard to develop resistance to them. Um, they're very potent. Um, they have few side effects, and then you can co-formulate into a single tablet. Yeah. So as you might imagine, that's sort of the perfect, you know, sort of storm. <laughs> How new are these? So it's been, I think the first integrase inhibitors were Altegravir, and ugh, I, I'm guessing it's probably been like maybe, I want to say eight years, seven, yeah. eight years at this point. That was the first one that came out. Right. Um, but what's interesting is Raltegravir, it has to be given twice a day and it's not co-formulated into a single tablet regimen. Mm. So with these new guidelines, raltegravir has actually fallen to alternative therapy, mm -hmm. interestingly mm -hmm. enough, um, whereas the drugs that are, can be given once a day are still a primary therapy. Got it, which makes sense because there's less likelihood you're gonna develop resistance if you have a multi-drug in one pill Adherence is That's easier. Right, because adherence is so much important. How about cost, though? Yeah, cost, um, I'm not super familiar with costs. I think they're all fairly on par. Mm. You know, these are single tablet regimens, um, so it's all your drugs in one regimen. Yeah. So as you can imagine, that's uh, more expensive than the individual components. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think, from what I understand of the cost, it's it's on par mm -hmm. you know, with other regimens. Obviously, the newer drugs are more expensive, and so that does come into... Um, a play when you, where you talk about these drugs going generic. So right. Some of these drugs now have been around long enough that they're going generic. So tenofovir, for example, has gone generic. And what's interesting about that is 
half, which is just tenofovir alafenamide, has just been developed by the same company, interestingly enough. Mm. Um, and it does not have the same side effects as tenofovir. So oh. tenofovir can mm. cause kidney damage uh, and bone thinning. Uh-huh. This new formulation does not. Oh, wow. What's the difference? So the, yeah, it's really interesting. So the difference is this new drug gets concentrated into cells very uh, rapidly. Uh-huh. And the plasma levels are, are low. lower. Ah. So it does not get doesn't filtered circulate. through the kidney. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't circulate. And so science, <laughs> I love it. It's amazing, isn't it? So it was designed that way. Um, so that there's going to be an issue where you have cheap, generic, probably tenofovir, which yeah. can have some side effects, versus right. TAF, which is virtually the same drug, which doesn't have side effects. Ooh. It's more expensive. Yeah. Right? So it's going to be a real challenge to see how this all gets sort Those of worked out. Those wily pharma people. <laughs> As soon as something goes generic, we'll just make a slightly better brand name version. It's it's interesting, isn't it? And so um, we'll see what happens with that. And that's actually addressed in the guidelines, interestingly Is it? Yeah. Because so how do you make the decision about switching then from tenofovir to TAF? Right. Right. Like for all of my patients, I've been doing that. Why why wouldn't you? Right. Right. Because it's a safer drug. Right. But when cost comes into it, you know, uh, how how do you deal with that? So I don't have a great answer. Uninsured patients, indigent patients. Right. Or or, or these... um, the drug assistance plans, you know, the state drug age yeah. drug assistance plans, you know, they have a defined budget. How are they going to spend that money? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. are they going to be pushing people to stay on tenofovir because it's cheaper? Right. And so that that's a that's a real struggle. So, what are the goals of the guidelines? Do they have do they set some sort of endpoints? We'd like to see this happen. And- yeah. So the guidelines, I, I really I have a sort of love hate relationship with guidelines. I I love them. <laughs> well, I have. I know, I'll interrupt you for a second yeah. because I have a love hate relationship with guidelines. Period. Yeah. Because they are a it's a bunch of old guys sitting around a table looking at evidence. <laughs> you're one of them. Right. But you're not very old <laughs> right. and so it's always a little bit a mix of evidence and intuition and yes. yeah so that's the issue you mm-hmm. can see sort of opinion mm-hmm. um, sort of creeping in there yeah and so that's where the peer review process is important mm-hmm. um, so hopefully the people who are reviewing these guidelines will pick up on where the opinion is is there and where really you should be focusing more on specific data yeah. I'll give an example uh, th- there's a statement in the guidelines about the use of Genvoya which is a combination integrase inhibitor in dialysis Analysis. Mm. Um, there's some, a little bit of data suggesting that that's okay, mm. um, but there's not a lot of data. There's not peer-reviewed data. Mm-hmm. And so when you see statements, for the, the, you'll see a statement in the guidelines saying, well, it's okay, to, uh, there, there is some data for use of this drug in dialysis. Uh, but you have to think to yourself, okay, what is that data? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a critical term. And, and should I really be doing that yeah. with just, you know, say a study that was 100 patients, it was an abstract form and not published? Uh, uh-huh. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I think yeah. when you read the guidelines, you have to be critical. And if yeah. you see something there that doesn't make sense, check the reference. Is that your job as an editorial writer? So you've written this piece in JAMA looking at the guidelines. Is your role to kind of be a another look at this and go, yeah, this makes sense. This is a little squirrely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So my, my role, what I tried to do in my editorial was to say, okay, here's the things that are new and interesting and exciting. So for example, the things we were talking about integrase inhibitors. Now, Bictegravir, which is a new integrase inhibitor, and Dolutegravir are the two preferred mm integrase inhibitors. That's important. And then the other integrase inhibitors have been bumped down to alternative. Raltegravir we talked about. We right. didn't talk about L-Vitegravir. L-Vitegravir is in a drug called Genvoya. It's kind of combined. Yeah. But the problem with that drug is 
it's metabolized through cytochrome P450. And so you get these drug interaction yeah, issues. With everything. Uh, yeah. with, with everything. And so that's been bumped down mm. to alternative. So I think, I thought that was really interesting. So that's, mm. that's sort of one thing I tried to convey. But the other is sort of yeah, what you just said, sort of interpreting critically what's in there. So, yeah. so I, just, I mentioned one thing I was a little bit critical about. The other thing I was critical about, they talk, um, there's a section there actually on cash transfers. Mm. Are you familiar with this? No. Like incentivization. So you have... This sounds interesting. <laughs> and so, you know, our, our goal as HIV practitioners is to get people to take medication every day yep. um, so that it suppresses viral load to undetectable levels and also make sure folks are coming back in to get uh, lab monitoring, coming into clinic visits, making sure they're not having side effects to the drugs, mm. making sure everything's going okay. Um, so, but in some cases, that doesn't happen. Mm. You know, for whatever reason, patients are unable to come back to clinic visits, whether that's related to mental illness, substance use, um, you know, any of the number of socioeconomic factors, difficulty with transportation. Um, Upstream medicine, all the social determinants, yeah. Yeah. And so how do you maybe add an incentive to try to overcome mm. some of those barriers, mm. right? So um, if it's travel, um, what about, you know, providing money, you know, to, right. uh, to, to alleviate that? Or if it's missing work, again, providing some cash assistance right. to compensate for that missed work. Oh, so Interesting idea, kind right? Kind of paying for adherence. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So does that work? Huh. So that's that's been a question, and so that's something I'm also interested in studying overseas. So yeah. I'm, I'm involved in we're developing a study for that right now. Where, where overseas? It was in Mozambique. Oh, that's just down the street, Mozambique. <laughs> Go somewhere real, dude. Like you're gonna. That's like that's not even foreign country. It's a fascinating place. <laughs> <laughs> so they they studied this in the U.S. and in one study in drug users who were seeking treatment, mm. um, you know, seeking in rehab. Um, they used, after they left rehab, they used cash transfers to try to get them to come in. Okay, so I was actually going to say, it sounds like something that would work, and I've never heard of this, it sounds like something that would work in the opioid uh, yeah. world to test. Now, would it actually right. work? Does it work? Does it That's work? the question. Yeah. In this situation, it did not. Oh. Interestingly enough. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. And so that population, maybe it's not going to work. Yeah. But in another study that was done where they just took uh, different health clinics, so this mm. was done in uh, New York City and uh, DC, Washington, mm. DC. And they took, a, there was a bunch of different, I think it was like 18 different clinics where they randomized them to either provide cash transfers to patients or not. Mm. And the cash transfer group, um, they actually did suppress the viral load mm. more often than the non-cash transfer group. So it was about a 3.8% difference, but which was 0.01, P equals 0.01. It was statistically Yeah. Um, so there may be some benefits hey, Well, there. here's a question. Do they look specifically at their adherence or could it have been that they were buying food with that money? It could be and better nutritional support. It, it could be any of yeah, those things. Yeah, and yeah. actually, that's a good point. A better nutritional support will improve adherence, right? Uh, because often, and this this occurs actually in the developing world, hunger yeah. is one reason why patients often do not take their HIV right. medicine because right. it can induce hunger. Right, right. And so again, that, that that was our idea idea in Mozambique was to see if we could overcome some of that with huh. these cash transfers. It's interesting because if, if, if a Medication says take with food. Right. If food is the limiting factor, right, right. that's another piece. And again, it, because we talk a lot on the show about the social determinants of health and how they are really almost everything, yeah. you know, 80, 90% of right. the effect. And that's then right. you have us at 10%. Right. But you know what's interesting about what, what a lot of what you're saying is a lot of people don't realize like infectious diseases, HIV in particular, is a intellectual paradise in terms of having to think a lot. 
So you're thinking about the best drug regimens, you're thinking also about social determinants and how to coordinate care. You're a primary care physician and a specialist at the same time. And you have to look at the economics of the drugs right. and the subtleties of you know how are you gonna suppress viral load? What, what was, you said something earlier but off camera about 90-90-90, some yeah. sort of goal. What is that? Yes, yeah, so the 90-90-90 goal, this is sort of a global uh, sort of ambition to diagnose mm. 90% of patients who have HIV. So interestingly, you'd say, well, these numbers we have, you know, there's 1.1 million people infected with HIV in the United States. That's a lot of people. That's a lot guys. of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also an estimate, interestingly, <laughs> yeah. because there's about, um, I think it's around 10% or 20%, 20%, I believe, that are considered to be undiagnosed. So that's a problem, right? Yeah. Because that's twenty percent of people who don't know have the HIV, mm -hmm. and who are more likely, the most likely, actually, to transmit to others. Yeah. So one goal is to try to you know decrease that number of people who are undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. So that's the first ninety. Mm -hmm. The second ninety is okay. Once you're diagnosed, these people need to get into medical care. Yeah. So ninety percent of the people who are diagnosed get into medical care. Got it. And so that's the second one. You think. Well, piece of cake, right? Right. Um, but it doesn't happen. Yeah, of course and so not. many people are not, even after they're diagnosed, they're not getting in to I mean, see a doctor. Try that goal with diabetes. You're never going to reach 90. Right. 90. What's the third 90? So the third 90 is 90% 90 of those who are in care with undetectable HIV viral load. Because we know that, number one, if your viral load is undetectable, that is good for your health. Right? Yeah. It's going to maintain your CD4 cell count and has all kinds of other health benefits, decrease inflammation. Um, and the second big part of it is you're basically you cannot transmit HIV to others mm. right, if your viral load is undetectable. Mm. This has now been shown in several studies yes. and this is this U equals U sort of campaign. I don't know if you've heard of this. No. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Oh wow. And so it's really been empowering actually for mm. patients to you know sort of understand that now because a lot of patients are very fearful you know even with condom use you know yeah. in terms of having sexual relations with others because they're worried about transmission of yeah. HIV. Well, you know, that, that you plus you campaign definitely beats the campaign I was proposing, which is you plus me equals us, which is probably not a great, you know, avoid sexually transmitted illness campaign. And, 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 and speaking of, you mentioned, you mentioned preventing transmission. Yeah. Is the pre-exposure prophylaxis that exists in, in HIV, is that commented on in the guidelines? And if so, how? It is, yeah. So I, I think this is also really important. Actually, the last two guidelines have mentioned PrEP mm. as being an important component of controlling the AIDS epidemic. And so that's why I like about how they've structured the guidelines now. It's not just about treating people who have HIV, it's mm. about addressing the epidemic as a whole. Ah. And so a big part of that is one diagnosis, like we just talked about, diagnosing people with, with enhanced testing, broadened broaden testing, but two right. is prevention with PrEP, so that's Truvada um, that we use for PrEP, yep. uh, and making sure that's available to people who are uh, at risk, uh, in addition to, of course, education by condom use. Um, and then they also do address this issue of trying to figure out how to make sure patients are following up, you know, with care, getting and maintaining care, maintaining adherence. That's all addressed in these guidelines, which I think is also just very important to think about. And also, you have makes you realize these guidelines are a starting point. Right. And so, you know, the guidelines are there. We have this incredibly complex, you know, medical system that should be able to take care of these patients, yet we're not able to. You know, why is that? Are any of us really surprised you work <laughs> in the healthcare system? <laughs> right. I mean, and so when you think the about... The non-system. So yeah. when, you, when you look at it, right, like right now, where are we? 
Mm. So right now, only about 50% of patients who are diagnosed with HIV have undetectable viral loads. Uh, I, I think that's horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, yeah. Because we have the capability to do it. We have the physicians to do it. Right. We have the medications to do it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. We're, we're right. a rich country. Right. Why can't we do better? Yeah. Um, you look at some of these other developing countries, they're able to achieve uh, these 90, uh, 90, 90 uh, goals. Uh, um, and I think a big part of it is the fact that they have free medication mm-hmm. and free health care. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for patients to access health care and get their medications. Even with the system we have of ADAP, you know, this AIDS Drug Assistance Program, mm-hmm. it requires paperwork to be filled out. Like every six months, you have to document this, that, and the other thing. People don't do that. Don't they, do it. They yeah. do it or yeah. whatever. Get you know, life gets in the way, and so then they stop taking their medications uh-huh. because they'll go to the pharmacy, and the pharmacy says, oh, your, your, your ADAP ran out, yeah. oh, um, you can't get really. your meds. Mm. And so a patient at that point has one of two options. They can call our clinic mm. and have our social workers help them mm. figure it out, mm-hmm. or they can just say, eh, I'm too busy right now. Yeah, and then the viral load goes and back up. And the viral load goes back up. So and then so the suppressing it might be harder next time if there's resistance developed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly. Wow. So what What do you, I mean, again, none of this surprises me or any of the ZPAC because we know how American sure. healthcare sure. works. And I'm not saying, you know, wave a magic wand and have single payer, although that may be one answer. It may be more, we need to think very cleverly about the barriers to treatment, overcoming them in certain populations, and then and then being a little egalitarian about it. If we're doing this for HIV AIDS, mm-hmm. can we do this for cancer oh, and yeah. for drug abuse yeah. and for you know all the other things that affect hepatitis C, hepatitis C yeah. diabetes, mm-hmm. undiagnosed, untreated diabetes, right. rampant, right, right, right. Um, all those things. So, in to sort of summarize it all, what's your big hope people will take away from these guidelines and what do you think are the biggest sort of challenges and opportunities coming up now for HIV? Yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway for me and you know, so how have I changed my practice for example, yeah. you know, yeah. sort of in, in regard to these guidelines. I think the biggest way I've changed my practice recently is the use of Bictegravir, which is one of those preferred integrase inhibitors I mentioned. Bictegravir is a new one. It's just like Dolutegravir, which is one of the more potent, you know, effective ones that we have mm. it's combined with TAF and intracytabine in a single tablet so why why is this drug uh, you know of interest and why do I think it's good number one it's, it's again it's very potent low genetic barrier to resistance or high genetic barrier, barrier to resistance, resistance. Yeah. Um, and so it's I think it's very useful for rapid start situations. Mm. This is the other thing we haven't talked about is when to start antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, right, yeah. And that's another new thing in the guidelines. Yeah. They're recommending basically immediate start. Oh, so so right away, as soon as you're diagnosed. As soon as you're diagnosed, as soon as you're seen by a physician, you start treatment right away. You don't wait. And so previously, we would get labs, um, we would see what the CD4 count viral load was, do resistance testing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, And that would all, yeah, that would take a month. Mm. And maybe the patients would come back. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they wouldn't. So you miss that opportunity. You miss an opportunity. So what we found now with several studies Mm. that if you start treatment right away, Patients like it, mm. uh, they expect it. Yeah. Um, you reduce the viral load much faster. Yeah. So when you compare it with usual care, people in these rapid start uh, protocols reduce their viral load undetectable in about a month and a half or so, yeah. compared to like four months in the old, God, old system. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's a good thing, right? Because yeah. you re- the faster you reduce your viral load, the less likely you are to transmit 
HIV to others, your health is better. Yeah. And so rapid start um, is the way to go. Um, now circling back around to the medication, so what medication would be best to use in a rapid start situation? Well, mm. you want one that where you're not gonna have a resistance issue. Um, you want it to be very potent in a single tablet regimen, preferably taken with or without food for mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. reasons we were just mentioning. And this new drug, Bictegravir with TAF and emtricitabine, fits that bill. Mm. Um, and so I think it's a drug that we're going to be seeing used much more often, and it's figured prominently in the guidelines awesome. as, as, a, as a first line option. So that's sort of one thing mm-hmm. um, I took away from it. The second is, of course, the rapid start. I think it's, it's been reinforced that that's the way it's to go now. Yeah. It's important. Um, I, I, so I think those are the two big Sort of Big takeaways for people treating uh, HIV. Messages. For people treating for HIV. Patients. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. So for my fans who are often afraid of uh, needle sticks, exposure, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. has anything changed in the guidelines as far as post-exposure uh, management? You know, they don't talk a lot about post-exposure prophylaxis in these guidelines. Mm-hmm. One thing, though, that I will say that has... Um, that will affect that. So dolutegravir mm-hmm. is one of the drugs that we have been using for mm-hmm. post-exposure prophylaxis. Right, like a nurse gets a stick, it's an HIV-positive right, right. patient, yeah. So the other new thing in the guidelines that just came up, uh, it's, I'm actually I'm, I'm surprised they were able to fit them in because this is just, just hot off the presses from about a month ago. Yeah. Um, dolutegravir has been found to have a slight increase in neural tube defects in pregnancy. Oh, okay, so this that's is a, key, yeah. Which is important to know about. And so this is a study that was being done in Botswana uh, they were mm. comparing dolutegravir-based regimens with other regimens, and they mm. found that the people who were taking the dolutegravir-based regimens had about a 0.9% mm. uh, 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 incidence of neural tube defects mm-hmm. in pregnancy, whereas the baseline was around 0.1%. Uh-huh. So it does seem like there might be something there. Yeah. But what's interesting is other studies have not shown that. Right. And so this is preliminary data. Right. So again, getting back to sort of the interpretation of, of data guidelines, how important, yeah. how important that is. Yeah. But this is something that's been released by the FDA and WHO. So it's it's out there. Mm-hmm. And I think right for right now, until we know more, dolutegravir should be avoided mm-hmm. in pregnancy. So circling back around to PEP, exposure prophylaxis. If if you're a nurse um, who's potentially pregnant or, or wants to conceive, um, mm-hmm. dolutegravir is part of PEP mm-hmm. should be avoided. Got it. Uh, Got for it. That Got reason. it. That's good to know. So these kind of things actually have practical implications for frontline providers who maybe don't think they'll ever intersect with the HIV world. That's right. Because sometimes life gets in the way and our work gets in the way. And the last question is, what do you think are the, are there big financial conflicts? These are multi-billion dollar, you know, blockbuster drugs. Are there big financial conflicts in terms of incentives, in terms of designing these guidelines? Like are the, is is pharma paying for the guidelines? Because that's a common question people will Yeah, and that's a good question. No, this is an independent group. As far as I know, is not funded by pharma. You know, in JAMA, you can dig through and find out what all the conflicts of interest are. Yeah. They're all in there. Yeah. And a lot of the folks who write these guidelines, they do do big studies. They are they do have some pharma study right. funding because they're they're you know helping develop these drugs. I mean, all yeah. of us in the academic community are, are contributing part. We're yeah. all contributing to the development of these drugs because we have academic clinics and we have the capability and know how to do these clinical studies. And so, yes, I'm sure some of the people who are writing these guidelines have been involved in the development of these drugs. Yeah. Uh, just because of what they do. 
Um, but I, I think you're right. You, you, again, you just have to look at what's there and, and interpret it with caution, you know, when you do see conflicts. Yeah. Um, but I think they're sort of inevitable in yeah. a way. Yeah, know. but knowing what they are, having them be disclosed. Exactly. And then making decisions uh, in an educated way. Based on that. Yeah. With the help of people who, like Dr. Riddle, write editorials to help us parse through complicated guidelines that may not be perfect because no guidelines are. That's right. And so this, again, hot off the presses in JAMA, new guidelines for HIV AIDS management. Dr. Riddle has an editorial in JAMA that just came out, and we are lucky enough to talk with him here on the beautiful island of Oahu. Happens also to be my brother-in-law, because like Trump, I'm all about the nepotism. You know what I'm saying? Arr, matey. Should we show him, uh, should we show him what the view is? Oh, definitely. Look at this, Z-Pack. This is, this is where we're talking. I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. CME to the extreme, people. <laughs> Jamie, thank you again for everything. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.